Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, February 21st. The pandemic created a new era for workers. It became the era of work from home. But is that era coming to an end? We discuss the current state of the Canadian office with Ed Matai of Peninsula, Canada. A new report has been released from Blue Cross Canada examining the current travel trends of Canadians. We get some details on the report, which surveyed about 2,000 people from Tim Bishop, Managing Director of Blue Cross Canada. And finally, astronomers believe they have found what is being called the brightest object in the universe. We learn all about this incredible discovery and how it was found with Dr. Matt Taylor, Professor of Astronomy from the University of Calgary. Many of us, in particular during the pandemic, wound up working from home. Many of you out there still work from home. But is that work from home era finally starting to come to an end? Ed Matei joins us. Ed is the in-house legal counsel at Peninsula Canada. Good morning to you, Ed. Good morning. Let me ask you a personal question. Did you work from home, Ed? Did you work from home? And are you still working from home? No, uh, I went a little bit stir-crazy working from home. I think it's a system that works for a lot of people. For myself personally, it was great for the first two weeks, and then after that, uh, it started steadily going downhill. (laughs) I think you're not alone in that. But then, you know, on the other hand, there are lots of people who have been quite happy to work from home and want to stay there. So what happens when an employer decides to call employees back to say, I want you back in the office? I mean... How does the, let's go from both sides. We'll start from the employee or employer's side. How do you navigate that, getting everybody to come back in and, and, and not making them quit? So first, I have no, for the majority of people, for many people at least, working from home is definitely the right choice. And for many of, uh, for many of them, they may have taken jobs specifically to start uh, uh, to work in a way uh, that works for them, namely from home. And so... The problem uh, that employers might run into if they try to uh, if they try to tell the employee, well, now you have to come back into the office. If they were hired specifically to work from home, uh, that amounts to a very significant change to their employment. It can be such a significant change that the employee might be entitled to uh, view that as a uh, constructive dismissal. And if so, they might be owed severance and everything else that comes along with being terminated. What about, Ed, we, we'd heard that for the first time in a long time, or maybe in history, that the employees were in the driver's seat as far as, um, you know, need, that the employers needed these employees, and we had some leverage. What about using it as a bargaining chip? Is that something we can look at, Ed, if we really want to stay, you know, where we where we're, uh, have been working from home? Absolutely. I mean, when it comes down to uh, to negotiating the terms for a job, just about everything is on the table. There, There's no reason... Um, why working from home might not be on the table. While the employer might have the interest in uh, maintaining a certain culture in the office, whereas the employer may have an interest in justifying uh, the expense of office real estate that they might be locked into a lease for, um, at the end of the day, they have an interest in getting the uh, work and output of that employee, and there's always going to be a negotiation there over how much that is worth and what they're willing to compromise on. So, Ed, I mean, would you say it's really all about communication, whether from the employer or employee, as to, you know, what happens when there is a call or should there be a call back to the office? So that's where I think the de- there's nothing wrong with moving back to the office, but the devil's in the details. Uh, and, and specifically um, in how that move back to the office is undertaken. 
like I said before, for many of the employees uh, that were told, look, you can now work from home, if it was communicated to them at some point that, no, this is permanent, you can go ahead and make changes in your life um, that only make sense and only work if you work from home. For those people, yes, this is going to be an issue, and this might cause significant headaches from uh, the employer's perspective if they try to force employees back to the office. And if nothing else, I have friends in the in energy industry here in, in Alberta, Ed, who who've struck that balance between the hybrid, maybe two or three days in the office, two or three days at home. Is that more common than it has ever been? I think that's a great point. I think that that is realistically going to be the end state of, uh, of this entire shifting that we've been seeing. I don't think we're ever going to go back to that truly in office all the time is the norm across the board, nor do I think that we're going to see this uh, completely widespread permanently from home culture. I think what we're going to end up in is a mishmash of the two where quite often what is normal is working several days in the week from the office and a few days a week from home. It's uh, certainly something that may pop up at your workplace, so something you should need to know a little bit about for sure. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We'll send folks to your website to find out a little bit more. Uh, Is it uh, Peninsula Canada? I'm just trying to find your website real quick. Peninsula, sorry, Peninsula Canada? Peninsula.ca. Peninsula.ca. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Ed Matei is in-house legal counsel at Peninsula Canada. This morning, a report was released from Blue Cross Canada. The report was an examination of Canadian travel trends, polling more than 2,000 Canadians. Tim Bishop is the managing director of Blue Cross Canada and joins us now. Good morning and welcome to the program, Tim. Thanks so much, Tim and Andy. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you for joining us. And I think, Tim, when we think healthcare, we think about Blue Cross, but it's much more than that, isn't it? Certainly, yeah. Blue Cross offers health, life, and travel insurance. Can you break it down a little bit for us in terms of, you know, the, the coverage? Blue Cross, It's I think it's just sort of one of those things that's always been there. And, and maybe you have health coverage at work, for example. But if you don't, what does Blue Cross offer? Certainly. So there's different components of our, our services here. And so we've got health insurance, of course. And so that's for anyone who is looking to top up their providers uh, through their work plan, perhaps. And that's one of the the key features that we offer is group insurance. And certainly with travel being top of mind for a lot of Canadians right now, looking to escape the winter, that's certainly uh, something that we are are very focused on this time of year. And certainly there's life insurance as well. And we offer national life insurance offerings right from coast to coast. Well, Jim, this is your world. This is your study. The 2024 Blue Cross Travel Study. It covers the impact of rising travel costs, travel stress, opinions on travel insurance, and emerging travel trends. Uh, you've, you've seen these results from this survey. And again, 2,000 Canadians taking part. What, what was your biggest takeaway, Tim? Yeah, certainly. Canadians are really optimistic about travel this year. And we've certainly seen the disruptions that travel have had over the last few years. And we know that the cost of travel, like everything else, is on the rise. But that's not stopping most people from taking a vacation. And so based on that study that you spoke about, where we talked to over 2,000 adults, we found that more people are feeling optimistic about travel. And maybe they're doing things a little bit differently in order to manage some of those costs. But they're really trying to get creative for their trips this year. Uh, So, I mean, Canadians are traveling more. You said it. What are some of the things that we need to know then before we book and or go on a trip? 
Yeah, certainly. Well, we know that Calgarians actually have more challenges leaving the province than most others across the country. And with flights being delayed and with luggage being lost, Calgary has some of the highest numbers of reported incidents, and those travel incidents are, are seemingly growing actually year over year. And so that's something that we, we certainly don't like to see. But that's actually one of the reasons that Calgarians are choosing to choose travel insurance more often. And that's something that can help with flight delays and with lost baggage, changed flights, cancelled flights, uh, missing hotel uh, bookings, this sort of thing. So insurance is actually coming forward to, uh, to help solve some of those problems. All right. Within that, you know, you say that Canadians are still traveling, uh, but there might be some barriers. So, so what are the main things within the survey, Tim, that are keeping Canadians from traveling? Certainly. So 94% of Canadians said that travel costs are increasing. No surprise there. Everything seems to be going up right now. But what we found surprising was that actually a third of, of Canadians, 34%, don't actually use all their vacation time. And the biggest part of that is due to cost. They don't have the dollars available to go anywhere. And 26% of Canadians are definitely not traveling out of the province or out of the country due to inflation. And so we're certainly seeing that that's a, a key uh, concern for people that, you know, they really want to get away because they know that there's the opportunity to recharge and have mental health uh, improved and, and really come back a, a lot fresher to work. We know that people are strengthening their relationships while they're away. And actually, we found it really interesting that people come back more creative and more productive after taking a vacation. I've read that people are looking for more more than just a trip, more, more of a, an experience or an adventure. Do you find that to be true? Certainly. We tested ecotourism this year. And so we know that 82% of Canadians are interested in this sort of travel. And ecotourism is if you're traveling and you're looking for something that has maybe less impact on the environment or uh, you're really looking to have a more natural uh, experience. And so we've seen that there's a lot of interest in this area, but people aren't really doing it yet. And so what we've found is that 28% of Canadians say that they're interested in this sort of thing, but they actually haven't done it yet. But what we are finding is that Canadians are taking really creative and affordable options and really taking that to heart. And so one of them is traveling solo. And if you travel on your own, of course, your costs are going to be a little bit lower. And we find that half of all travelers and about two-thirds of younger travelers are reporting that they're taking vacations on their own. Another thing they're doing is taking staycations. And so about 40% of Canadians are staying closer to home in their province, and that might be for camping or skiing or, or having a, a more local experience. And then we're actually finding, just like you're going to be talking about in a few minutes, that working remotely, about a third of Canadians have either relocated or planning to relocate so that they can work remotely and still get a new experience, maybe in a different province, maybe in a different part of Alberta, maybe in a different part of the country. Very interesting uh, data. Thank you for your time, Tim. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That is Tim Bishop, Managing Director of Blue Cross Canada. You can find out more about Blue Cross at bluecross.ca. We're talking about what astronomers are calling the brightest object in the universe. Okay, kind of a big deal, I would think. Here to explain what the object is and why it's so bright and everything about this topic is Dr. Matt Taylor. Dr. Taylor is an assistant professor of astronomy at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Matt. Morning, thanks for having me. So if you can uh, dummy this down for us, and by dummy, I mean if you can talk to me, um, what <laughs> have astronomers found? So yeah, this is uh, this is a pretty cool discovery that's uh, being led out of a team from of astronomers out of uh, Australia, 
And uh, what they've actually found is something that was imaged uh, almost 30 years ago, actually, back in the 80s. Um, so back in the 80s, they, they had uh, some archival pictures, and they, uh, they actually knew about this, this particular object. But they just thought it was just kind of a run-of-the-mill star that was within our own Milky Way. Um, and so what this discovery is, is actually a reanalysis. Kind of they, they re-looked at the object and uh, determined its distance. And it turns out that it's not anywhere close to our Milky Way. It's, uh, it's actually very, very, very far away, about 12 billion light years away. Um, and so knowing that distance means that uh, if we can see it, it must be at a, a very, very, very high brightness. And we're calling it the brightest object in the universe. So do we know where that light, where that bright comes from? Yeah, so what this object actually is, is uh, it's called a quasar. Uh, so the, the term quasar just stands for quasi-stellar object. Uh, it's, it's quasi-stellar because it just appears to be just a star. Um, and so what it's, its distance is what, uh, what makes it so remarkable. And so what's powering it is uh, it's actually a supermassive black hole, as the, uh, as the lead-in song kind of uh, 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 led to. Um, it's a supermassive black hole that's sucking in um, tons and tons and tons of matter, so almost the entire mass of our sun per day. And so as that mass is being uh, uh, sucked into the black hole, it's being heated to incredibly high temperatures. Um, and those high temperatures are what's giving, uh, giving off all the light that we're actually seeing. So let's break this down for perspective, uh, Dr. Taylor. Uh, we talk about an object this bright. How, and I'm not sure if there's a kind of a hit list here, how would our sun compare to something like this? Because it's kind of bright. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our sun is really, really bright to us uh, because it's really nearby, right? So in uh, astronomical terms, it's basically right in our neighborhood. Um, but if you took the sun and moved it at a significant distance away, uh, it'll get, you know, fainter and fainter and fainter. Kind of like, you know, if you take a flashlight, shine it right into your eye, it seems really bright. But uh, you don't have to move that flashlight too far away before it gets uh, a lot dimmer. So this object, um, if you were up close to it, and uh, thank goodness we're not, uh, it would appear to be about 500 trillion times as bright as our own sun. Uh, to put this in more perspective, you know, there's, there's uh, on the order of 100, 200 billion stars within our own galaxy. This single object uh, is the equivalent of a few tens of thousands of times brighter than all the stars combined within our own Milky Way galaxy. Like this, this thing wow. is an absolute beast. Wow. Okay, so does this discovery tell us anything new then about space overall or about the universe? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always fun, right? It's always fun to kind of, you know, set a new record, find the brightest thing, the, the most massive thing, the densest thing. And that, that in itself is, is super cool. But, um, but what it really gives us the opportunity to do is study an environment that we can't replicate on Earth. You know, some of our, our burning questions in physics is, you know, how does matter behave at these extreme densities or extreme temperatures? So we can't, you know, thankfully, we can't create uh, a supermassive black hole, you know, in a laboratory here on Earth. We just, we can't do that, which is probably a good thing. Um, but now that we know that this thing is out there, we can actually use that kind of as a, like a laboratory that the universe itself has provided to start answering some of these really fundamental questions about physics. Uh, just before we let you go, it's interesting because you mentioned that it was discovered originally during a 1980 sky survey, 44 years ago. Is that right, Dr. Taylor? 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so because this happened so far back, I'm wondering with technology today, can we expect more incredible discoveries with the technology we have moving ahead? Because that, that's way back in, in history. Are we just at the tip of the iceberg, so to speak? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's absolutely the case. We're, uh, our next generation of telescopes that are starting to come online, and, uh, and people will hear about them in the years to come, um, these discoveries will, be, will continue to be, uh, to be made. So I, I expect that this, uh, while it's the record holder now, um, that'll probably fall in the, uh, in the coming years as we discover more and more objects uh, like this. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Really appreciate you uh, breaking it down for us. It's fascinating discovery. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dr. Matt Taylor, Assistant Professor of Astronomy at the University of Calgary.